Well, welcome to another episode of the Gary Anderson F1 show. As you can imagine, we've got a huge amount to talk about. We've got driver changes. We've got, obviously, the fallout from the massive accident for Roman Grosjean in the Bahrain Grand Prix to talk about. So we've had plenty of questions from you. I'm Ed Straw. As ever, I have Gary Anderson, the star of the show, with me to offer his insights. I guess we should just briefly start with, you're someone who's seen a lot of accidents in, in Formula One, sadly, over the years. When you see something like that happening, it, that feels like something that you'd have seen in your in your early days in the in the nineteen seventies, rather than something you'd expect to see in twenty twenty. It must have felt very much like the the bad old days. Yeah, it did indeed. I mean, when it exploded into flames, you thought that's not a good place to be because you know fire is always one of the things that worries me or worried me. Um, but even before that, when we saw the car going across the track just in, in the distance there, um, you thought that's quick, and then just again you got the explosion before the flame came up uh, you know that was a big big hit never mind anything else and obviously the flame was the aftermath of it um but huge 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 impact to be honest and it's a testament to you know the safety of everything and as we've talked about FIA and everything that that he survived that accident as an accident forget the flames you know the flames are a different a different part of it but as an accident it's a testament that he survived that part of it never you know as I say never mind anything else yeah, there's lots to be learned by the barriers opening up and stuff. We'll get into that, I'm sure. But um, I'd say I'd pat the guys in the back that have come up with the regulations that we currently have. Might not be perfect by any means, but I'll tell you what, um, not many years ago you wouldn't have stepped out of that. Plenty of questions about that. We will divert away from that for the initial bit because obviously we've also got the Haas driver announcement with Nikita Mazepin being confirmed and... Of course, Lewis Hamilton at a similar time was confirmed as being out for the Sakir Grand Prix this weekend because of COVID-19. David Heaton has asked, with Lewis Hamilton out, how will the team go about getting the best out of his stand-in, whoever that might be? And as a disclaimer, we don't currently know for sure who that that stand-in will be. We don't know whether that will be confirmed in the time between recording and us uh, being released. It'll be confirmed fairly soon. But yeah, how would you go about it, Gary? There's basic fundamentals of the racing car that you need to learn about, need to know about. Um, there's nothing too dramatically different in these cars. I mean, they're all two-pedal cars, accelerator on the right-hand side, brake pedal on the left-hand side, steering wheel, the gear change, the clutch, you know, the gear changes go up on the, on the right-hand side, they go down on the, on the left-hand side, or whatever way the driver prefers them, easy enough to program. So all of that stuff that's a normal thing that you have to drive is all he has to get to come to terms with initially. Then after that, you get into the uh, the deluxe model of it, you know, being able to adjust everything and do things. And there's a there's a, a ramp up curve for all of that stuff. So I'm assuming, let's say, they put a driver in there that's that's never driven uh, the Mercedes. Um, now, if it's Van Dorn, he's done some simulation work. I'm sure he knows about the steering wheel. Um, there is a, a you know a kit that they have for a steering wheel learning curve, so they'll be able to plug a steering wheel in and they'll have that in the hotel bedroom. You know, playing with it. it. It could be any driver, but I say you'll you'll learn about these things as you need to learn about them. And the first thing to learn about is driving the car. Most of the stuff that the driver does to the setup of the car, from a new driver point of view, will be instructions from the the engineer. He'll be telling them, you know, left hand knob, go to number ten for the diff or something like that. So he doesn't, you know, he doesn't have to sort of come up with the solutions. He has to come up with the with the functions and and, and do it. And that'll all be from instructions. And if you had a new driver in the car, you would limit that to you know, maybe five percent of its potential for his first practice session, and then so on through to you get to a point where he knows enough about it to go racing. So don't try and do everything overnight. Just bring it in easy. Use the tools. Use the simulation tool for the steering wheel. Get used to the 
how the practical stuff works, so that, you know, as I say, the clutch, the gearbox, the various changes that you would have to do, like the brake balance, um, and, and just sit, come into it quietly. Don't don't come into it all singing and dancing. Don't think you're going to be faster than FP1. You know, you don't have to be. You just have to learn about it. And when you, as you go through the sessions, make sure the thing's got four wheels on it, still on the track, um, and you're still learning about it. And there's a time and a place then to to maybe wring its neck as best you can. But you don't have to le- learn everything. And just to throw my question in, if you suddenly found yourself as Mercedes technical director and so will phone you up and said, all right, Lewis is out, what do you think we should do? What, what would your reaction be? Well, as a driver, I'd like to put somebody in who knows the current cars um, because they're different to drive, never mind the fact of changing all the stuff on the steering wheel. They're, they're very different to drive and get used to and understand. So if you could get a driver, and again, I don't know who they'll pick, to be honest, if I was doing it right now, I would be trying to um, somehow get George Russell out of um, Williams for the for the weekend, and I would be helping to get probably Van Dorn into the Williams for the weekend, because it would give Van Dorn some experience. There's no pressure on him. He's got his Formula E drive. He's not a Formula One driver. He's not looking at a Formula One career at the moment. You know, as far as I know, um, because there is no slots for him. So that drive with the Williams wouldn't do him any harm. Um, it would do him a lot of good because it would put him in a position where he'd understand the, the car on the racetrack a bit better. But George could come into Mercedes, he's driven the car, he knows the team. We all think he's very quick um, and it would give him an opportunity to, to get on with the job. So if I was technical director, that's the way I'd be trying to push. The next question is also about this from Alan Stevens. He says, you seem to change drivers every weekend in the early years of Jordan. How difficult did that make things? It certainly was quite a few changes in 91 91, 93, and 94 in particular. Yeah, tell me about it, Alan. Yes, uh, we know about making seats, I must admit. Um, they could do them pretty quickly. Um, it, it's a very difficult thing. You know, you're changing the driver all the time, so you can't get any continuity. Every driver wants the car in a, you know, to handle in a certain little way, a bit more understeer, a bit less understeer. You know, it, it's focused on traction. He doesn't like a heavy steering, light steer. You know, all these things all add up to, to every driver wanting his own little bit and, bits and pieces and you know just the throttle pedal travel or how hard the brake pedal is you know you can change all these things with the size of the master cylinders and the stroke of the pedals so there it was always very difficult and you never get the best out of it it's like it's like if you keep on putting new bits on the car every weekend blindly you never get the best out of the best of the package you've got and it's the same with changing drivers you never get the best out of any of them somebody will step into the car and be exceptional as michael schumacher did um you know just from the fact he's got raw talent the car that is driving at that point in time suited that circuit really well its characteristics were ideal for that type of circuit um so you know something will click but um if you just keep on doing it just for the sake of it either because you want to try and get money out of drivers as happened to us on a few occasions i must admit back then um or if you're you know if you're just doing it because you're forced to do it you'll, you'll never get the best out of it so whoever gets in there just needs to as i say you know, just do the best job they can within the time, but do it competently and try not to make mistakes. Well, let's move on to the main topic that people have been asking about, which is the the Grosjean crash. There's various different approaches. I've tried to group them roughly in some kind of logical order. Andy Love says, is there any argument for repackaging things? Having the energy store slash batteries under the fuel cell isn't ideal, and it would be the same for everyone. If the powertrain detaches, the tub should be safe from electrical hazards. Yeah, I would uh, not disagree with that at all. It's it's one of those very very difficult things. The you know the the engine detaching from the back of the chassis, 
that happened to, to me with the Peugeot engine on the, on the Jordan 96, the first lap of the Australian Grand Prix. Uh, Martin Brundle ran into the back of, I think it was David Coulthard, and the front of the car got accelerated over the top of David's car, got up the rear wheel. And it um, basically it, put, it broke the front of the engine off on the back of the chassis. So accidents do happen and things coming apart is not the end of the world because obviously if you can get rid of that weight, um, then you've got a lot less energy to absorb for where the, where the driver's sitting. So the whole objective is always to keep the survival cell um, as a unit. And it's one of those sort of difficult things. Where does all the... The connections go, you know, the fuel tank was in the survival cell. I believe that probably the engine compressed the fuel tank and, and um, pressurized it so that, because it was full of fuel at that point in time, pressurized it so that some of the, the hatches or whatever got blown off as opposed to actually, you know, getting torn off. They got blown off uh, with the pressure inside the fuel tank. Um, and, the, and the, the battery pack is something similar. It's underneath the fuel tank for the logical reason that it's it's part of the energy source of the car. It's a good place to put it. It's down low. It's a big old piece of kit, um, but it's you know and it's heavy. So it's probably, in, to be honest, in the safest place it could be, and right in the middle of the car, underneath it. Maybe the regulation for the the fuel tank, um, the, the the strength of the material around the fuel tank and the thickness of it and all that sort of stuff maybe needs to be reviewed. To try to sort of stop that sort of thing happening, and perhaps the uh, the energy pack m might need to go vertically on the front of the engine or something, so that it packs up against the back of the chassis as a vertical unit. And if for any reason the engine comes off, it comes off and, and stays with the with the engine. It's actually mounted on the engine as opposed to mounted on the chassis. So I'm sure there's lots of lots of ways of looking at that. I personally, I don't think it's in a bad place. Um, it's very difficult to find a safer place, to be honest, than where it is. It just happens to have been highlighted this this weekend because of the accident, because of the back of the chassis coming off, which, you know, we might never see again in the next 20 years. It's just one of those things that happened. But learn something from it and take that all into account. And, you know, we have got a major change coming for 2022. Some of those little bits like that, they won't affect, you know, the research, the aerodynamic research or anything, but they could be incorporated into those... 2022 regulations because everybody will be building a new a new concept of chassis as such so the learnings from Grosjean's accident should go into the 2022 car and be a very positive result from it as far as not seeing what we've seen before well if you're interested in getting a bit more of a visual idea of what Gary was talking about there there was an excellent piece by uh, by Gary on the race.com website, the hyphen race.com. If you search for Gary Anderson, what we can learn from Grosjean crash wreckage, there's some great pictures and an explanation there of what everything is and what happened to various things in the crash. Well worth a look there. Next question comes from Ginger, who says, a lot of praise after the last race for the way the doctors on board the medical car responded. How do you think things would have turned out if this happened after one lap and the medical car was not on the scene so quickly? That, of course, was Alan van der Merve, the former British F3 champion who's the driver, and Dr Ian Roberts, who were on the scene immediately. Yeah, I have to say I'd pat them in the back any time for the job they've done. It's very, very difficult to to run into a burning fire like that, not having a clue as to what's going to happen next, because, you know, again, it could have been another explosion, more fuel got out or whatever. And it doesn't take much for fuel that's lying on the ground that's getting washed around the ground to, to catch you and, and you being caught in the middle of it. So... You know, they, they did that without any risk to themselves, any um, forethought to them, of themselves. They had a lot of risk going in there. But again, it's the same old deal, you know. It's uh, how do you 
compensate for, for a race. You know, as you say, it could happen at the end of the first lap, it could ha happen at the beginning of the second lap, and then the medical car wouldn't be there. Um, so that's why the marshals at the track should have to be patted on the back. I must admit, they themselves were are quite slow at getting to things. You know, they do a fantastic job, I must admit, and they're controlled by the FIA, so they can't just run out and do stuff. Um, but there has to be some sort of leeway there at the beginning of the race where you know that things, strange things could happen and the marshals need to get to, to positions that are, you know, they're very important because seconds count. You know, Roman Grosjean, it wouldn't have taken much longer for him to be really in trouble. Um, and he could have been trapped in the car. He got out himself. He managed it. Um, but at the end of the day, I hate to think what would have happened if it had, had it happened at the beginning of the second lap and there would be no backup from the uh, safety car. Yeah, it could have been very, very different. And connected to that, a question from Mark on Twitter. He said, I asked you years ago on the Autosport Q&A what the biggest safety improvement was in your days. And you said fire safety. Given the info in this tweet from Karun Chandok, how bad could this have been without this year's suits? Now, Karun tweeted about the fact that he heard from someone at the FIA that they introduced a new race suit this year, which is heavier but protects the driver from fire for about 20 seconds, whereas the gloves still only do about 10 seconds. So... Clearly, that might partly explain why why he ended up with secondary burns to the hands, but was otherwise pretty much unharmed. Yeah, once again, you know, getting out, um, you can see him leaning on the crash barrier. Um, the, the heat in the crash barrier after the flames had been going for 20 seconds must have been, you know, quite intense. Leaning onto the halo, you know, everything he had to lean on to get out because you can't get out of one of these cars without leaning on something and everything he was going to lean on was was going to be pretty hot. So never mind the flames actually burning the hands, the, the heat would probably be quite dramatic. Um, but again, you have to do everything you can. You know, the, the, the hands and the fingers need to be quite nimble, and that's probably why they aren't, they aren't using heavier gloves. But I'm sure, you know, right now, they will take stock of that. They will look at it very, very, very carefully. Um, any developments, you know, they, they keep coming on that sort of material. Material knowledge just keeps coming, so... I'm sure the overalls will change again and uh, and the gloves will go with it. It's like, you know, one of his boots came off. Was that good or bad? It's it's one of those difficult things because it might have been caught in the front of the monocoque. Obviously, the front of the monocoque had broken off. So you can get your feet caught in there and you can't get out because your feet are caught in it. So the first thing you'll do is tear the boot off. But if you had boots on there that you couldn't tear off, would you still be stuck in the car? So it's a, everything's a little bit of a compromise. And I think, you know, we just need to learn from it and, and try and move forward. Anything that's been done to help protect people from fire is just such a massive thing. You know, from my point of view, that's the worst thing possible. I was at Zandvoort when Roger Williamson died in his accident when the car was tur turned upside down and was caught in sort of the V of the crash barrier and the, and the uh, track, and he couldn't get out of the car. And uh, from all intents and purposes, as far as I know, from people that were there, um, you know, he wasn't really injured. It just was the fact he was caught in the, in the fire. And that is the worst scenario for, for anybody in my book. It's just incredible. Next question comes from Lewis Rinaldi, who says, how would the concrete barriers put down after the Grosjean crash have performed if they were in place to begin with? Um, very well. They're a very good solution to the problem. Um, they need to be make sure they're all linked together at the back, and you can see the, the marshals and the, the track workers putting the linkage on the back of them, steel, steel plates, channel iron goes across there. Each one of those barriers from, from memory, from what I know, weighs about seven ton. So basically, you know, if a car hits one of those, it, it will move it. Um, you know, it takes, it'll, 
it'll absorb the impact because the car you know, doesn't penetrate it like it penetrated the crash barrier. The car has to stand to, up to that um, that impact. But if you you know if you if you look at all the crash tests that the chassis has to do, the nose section, everything, none of it is against something that you can penetrate. It's all against a solid plate. So basically, the concrete solution is relative to the crash tests in a better way. Um, I think over the last years we've learned that that uh, fit people, i.e., you know, racing drivers, can withstand very high peak G's for you know, a very short amount of time, but very high peak G's. So they're not they're not so worried nowadays about high G high peaks uh, G levels, um, as long as they're not sustained. Um, so basically, stopping the car against something like the concrete barrier is a good solution. If you're going to, you know, from my point of view, the concrete barrier should be all the way around the track, linked together, and then in areas where you're theoretically going to have an accident, you have the um, Tech Pro barrier in front of that concrete barrier, or layers of tires, or something to just. With, you know, help with just the, the deceleration. That links into the next question from Elio, who says, how sensible and feasible is it to change most of the Armco barriers to Tech Pro or, or tyre barriers? Obviously, your solution there of concrete plus Tech Pro in key areas uh, solves that. And also, he suggests, how about a pop-up front part of the halo to separate the car from the floor when it's upside down? Um, yeah, it's, you know, we have the front of the chassis. The front of the chassis is very high. Uh, we have the rollover bar. You know, I think we saw from Lance Stroll's incident that um, it, it's, it's quite a difficult thing to do anything better than what you've got. It, it rested on the rollover bar and the halo, and he was able to extract himself out of the side of the car there. Now, I don't think I could get out through one of those halos, but um, I'm, not, I'm not trying to. But, you know, it's, it's, quite, it's quite a good thing that you can do that, and maybe that should be taken into account soon of the you know the, the ability to get out of the car upside down um you know should you have to test that should you have to take one of your chassis and put it upside down and rest it on its roll bar and, and halo and and you know just the chassis itself and the driver has to be able to extract himself so he knows how to do it because it can happen you know there's nothing to say that um lance stroll's car you know couldn't have been upside down and caught fire you know we don't know you know it wasn't a big enough accident obviously the car just tipped upside down and landed on its rollover bar, so it wasn't a drama. But it, it could have been upside down, and they still would have to get out of it. So maybe there's, you know, again, something's been learned from that. Um, making the front of the chassis higher is not a good solution. Um, and I, I don't think you can do anything which, which wouldn't disturb your vision that far forward. It's, it's, far enough, it's not that far enough away to not see it. Um, the halo with its central post is okay because it's close to you. You don't actually see it. You're looking further ahead. But whenever you get to the front of the chassis there with something that would be structurally sound enough, you probably would see it. It would probably blur your, uh, lose a bit of vision there. So you need to be very careful with that. I think learn from what we've got. Learn the halo and the rollover bar can support the car, but allow the drivers to have a look at it upside down in your workshop, just even, and, and look at extraction and how you would get out if that sort of thing happens. Because it will always end up one side or the other because of the way the halo is. It will always roll over onto one side or roll over onto the other side. So it's always going to be one open side as such to get out. Um, and that's what you've got to look at and try and make sure the drivers are aware of it. Next question comes from Patrick DeLee. Could this accident spark a rethink on track safety? The fact that the barrier was angled outwards rather than inwards meant that there was no possibility of the car skimming the barrier and sliding down the side of the track and resulted in a head-on impact. Of course, this all depends on what it's protecting, doesn't it? 
Yeah, it all depends on what. If you if you look at the accident happening, um, you know, from a sort of ver, um, above, I, I don't think the, that impact was head on. I would have said the barrier that was there. Obviously, it, it comes in onto the leans in onto the track, uh, maybe fifteen degrees relative to the track angle. It's not that acute, um, and the car was going across there. So I, I think the the impact of the of the car to the barrier was was probably. You know, I don't know, 40, 45 degrees, fifty degrees, or something. And with that, the front of the car penetrated the the barrier, and that spun the car as such. The rear of the car kept going because you know that it wanted to it wanted to keep going. Nothing was stopping it. And there's a, also a post there for the for the crash barrier. Now, in my past, over the years, I've seen some very different accidents where people hit the crash barrier between the posts and people hit the crash barrier at the post. The outcome is horrendously different, so that played a big role in it as well. Um, I don't like the, the the barriers coming out to allow access because there's no reason why um, the other barrier couldn't be in, and uh, you know a much sort of shorter acute uh, angle. But we always see these accidents, and they always seem to be happening where there's a connection between two bits of wall or a. Or two bits of barrier, you know, there's a gap because you have to get access from the track service route onto the track. So there's always a solution there somewhere that, that needs to be looked at. Um, and in this case, nobody ever expected an accident to happen there. You know, it's full throttle, you're, you're, you're on your way down that straight, really, to be honest. So it, it is something that you just have to, you know, learn from and try to make sure there is solutions there for the future that are decent solutions and take this all into account because, you know, what's the track length? Three three miles to four miles or something long? You know, maybe even longer than that. It's a lot of track and there's probably only, in reality, there's probably only, you know, half a mile of that where you could consider that you're going to have an accident because of cornering speed or corner entry or corner exit. Um, so you've got, you know, two and a half, three miles of, of nothing to do something with. If you imagine, you know, the old... Hockenheim ring or something and you try to fix the, that whole track all the way around to stop this type of accident happen it would just cost millions and millions and millions now, I know safety has to come first but somewhere along the line you have to draw draw that line and make sure that you've got a solution that's acceptable and um, that will just get extended a bit now You know, the, the, the places where you can have accidents will probably get extended a bit but just learn from the barrier opening up and do something with that even a big conveyor belt on the barriers you got will help. You know, double-layered conveyor belt or something uh, strapped onto the barrier will stop the penetration, and that's what you've got to try and stop now. Next question from Stuart Henry asks, what form do you think the FIA safety investigation will take regarding the Roman Grosjean incident? Have you helped with FIA investigations like this in the past? And if so, how rigorous are they? Yeah, they're, they're, they're pretty rigorous. Uh, it's one of those sort of things that says, whenever there's a, an incident to that level... You know, you, you look at Roman Grosjean's on chassis and you're going to have to make some assumptions. It's it's pretty difficult to build up the big picture there because there's so much damage in, for different reasons. And obviously the barrier opening up, you know, when did that open up? Did it open up immediately? Did it open up halfway through it? There's lots and lots of things to look at. So they'll be looking at the deceleration curve of the, of the chassis, how far the chassis went into it. Um, you know, all that sort of stuff to try and learn from it. Um, so they will, you know, I think they will do a, a fairly rigorous um, analysis of it, but there will have to be some assumptions made on the way there. You know, they'll never find that one rivet or that one bolt in the, in the barrier that was the one 
bolt that caused the grief because it opened up. You know, it's just it it was just an horrendous incident. So I have been involved a bit with accidents, but not to that level. Um, normally, there've been accidents whenever you're at the track and something's happened, and you have to look at it, and the FIA will come and have a snoop around with you to see if you can identify the reasons of what happened first or what happened second. You know, when Rubens Barrichello crashed at um, at Imola in 1994. I mean that was an horrendous accident. You know that was that was the speed that Grosjean was travelling at more or less. Um, I can't remember the exact speed, but it was quick. Um, and and you know you look at that and you try and learn from it, like you do with everything. And again, it's it's just one of those things where there's no black and white fix for everything. You just have to take into account that this is a dangerous sport when you've when you've got race, cars or motorbikes or whatever travelling at speeds that these things travel at. Something can go wrong, and something will go wrong. And uh, then once that happens, you've got to react to it. You do the best you can on the way there, but you have to react to what's happening and then, and then uh, see where that takes you to. Next up from Jean Raphael Conde, did the lateral protections of the cockpit contribute to Grosjean not seeing Fiat's? A big blind spot was a major cause of the accident. And there's, there's a number of questions about the blind spots. Cactus Jack says, could rear-facing cameras help avoid it? Simon Ray, Chajiri and IAO have both suggested could there be some kind of uh, blind spot alert or something, some system to, to warn them basically to stop. Grosjean obviously had no idea if that was there and was assuming there wouldn't be a car there, which is perhaps a risky assumption. Is there any way to mitigate that from happening? Um, it's very difficult because, again, these mirrors that we've got now, they see nothing in them, to be honest. you know, there's a, If you're going down a straight, you can take a glimpse. If there's a car behind you... Um, and it's not more than sort of two meters offset to the side of you, you could probably see it just about, but that's it. Um, so, you know, this was the first lap. There's cars ducking and diving everywhere. So there is no way that any driver is going to be spending a huge percentage of his time looking in the mirrors. You're going to be looking up ahead because Grosjean came across to the right, I'm pretty sure, because there was cars in front of him looked like they were having a bit of a argy-bargy themselves, and it looked like there was a bit of a gap on the right-hand side. So he made that decision to come across there to to better his position in the race. If there was somebody right beside him, yeah, he could see it. But if the front wheel was level, if the front wheel or the nose of the car was level with Grosjean's head, he probably wouldn't have seen it. And it was actually further back than that. So, you know, there is no way that you can see, you're going to turn your head sideways to look in that side of a, an incident. Uh, that type of a uh, start of the race because of the the traffic and what you're trying to do with it and jiggle around, um, and there's no way you see it in the mirror. So if you had a warning system in the car that um, maybe you know for cars within two meters of you or something, you know that you you could have some sort of a, like a parking parking alert thing of some sort. I wouldn't I wouldn't go against that at all by any means. It would take quite a while to get it to work properly to get confidence in it that it was. It was there because all of these things, you know, when you're parking your car, do you actually look? There might be a post behind you that the, the parking sensor doesn't actually pick up. So you've got to make sure it either works correctly, 100%, or doesn't work at all. Um, and at the moment, what we've got, the drivers are aware of it. They're aware of the limitations. So some drivers will not do strange things in that mid-pack, and there are some drivers that do some strange things. Unfortunately, Roman Grosjean is one of the very aggressive drivers that seems to do things a little bit out of the blue. Whereas, you know, there's other drivers, we've seen them, you know, 
think and I know Lewis Hamilton's a very different example up the front there, but you know, he doesn't just make mistakes like that. And it'd be so easy at times to make mistakes like that. But there are some drivers that attract um danger, I suppose you might call it, and there's other drivers that don't. Um and unfortunately Roman Grosjean's one of them that, you know, everybody has to look look after themselves around him. Um which is a bit a bit tricky to be in, but something might be done. The rearview camera, again, it's the same old deal. You've got to make sure it works if you've got it, um, all that sort of stuff. It'll be for the future for sure. I'm sure there's something going to happen there, but uh, I don't know what it would be right now. JR asks, after a significant event or disruption like in Bahrain, how do you go about settling the drivers down and the team down to get ready to focus on the race ahead? Uh I don't think there's any, the team itself is, is pretty good at that sort of stuff. You know, they're, they're detached from it. Obviously, the, the Grosjean team side of the garage, uh, that was a slightly different thing. And Magnussen's side of the garage would obviously be feeling the, the, whole, the, the pain of the, the whole thing going on. But for other teams outside of it, obviously, they're interested. Whenever Grosjean got out of the car, probably five minutes after it, the team's, you know, that was, that was it. It was done and dusted. He got out of the car. They saw him walking across the road. Might have a couple of burns, but that's life. You know, you have to get on with it. Um, as for the drivers themselves, some drivers t- treat it differently. Um, and I tweeted, I think, at the time, it would be interesting to see who could handle it the best. I didn't see MD handle it badly. I think the one driver that does seem to carry some emotion is Daniel Ricciardo. He does seem to have that bit of insight to, to what people are and personalities in life. And um, he, he's one of the guys that I expected maybe to see a little bit of a a little bit shy at the at the start of the, the, the next part of the race. Um and I think he was a little bit for a few laps just to get you know get his, himself back up and motivated again. Um but different drivers handle it in different ways. But at the end of the day, you know, that's the job you take on. I think you know the risks. You control your risk driving the car. You know, you you control the risk level you go to. If something breaks on the car, you have no control over it. That's the thing that eats you up a bit. If if Roman Grosjean swerved across Danny Kvyat, got caught in his rear wheel and crashed, the other drivers would look at that and say, that was a stupid mistake to make, wasn't it? And the end, the end result of it was the accident. So the, everybody knows that if, if you put yourself in a position where you make errors, you will pay the price some point in time. And the, 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 as far as the drivers are concerned they go into that second part of the race saying, well, I'm not going to make errors. You know, you, you saw I mean, Lance Stroll was a typical example. And Danny Kvyat, you know, who was at fault there? Kvyat got a penalty for it. I think Stroll was a bit ambitious pulling in on him. Again, he didn't see Kvyat up the inside probably. But the consequences were that he, he ended up upside down. Very cool and calm about it all, but he ended up upside down. So some drivers will do that and, and take advantage if they can. Some drivers won't. So that's, uh, but you just have to live with it and the fact that you are not a driver that goes out and puts yourself at risk other than the fact that motor racing is a risky business and you are traveling at speed. So um, everybody would handle it in their own little way. Just from a personal basis, you mentioned the, the Roger Williamson, the terrible accident at Zandvoort in 73, you were there with Brabham. So when something like that happens, we all see you saw it personally but you see the photos of the smoke and everything so even though it was pretty much on the far side of the circuit from the pits you'll have been aware of that when you see something like that and the race keeps going on is it easy to keep focusing on what Wilson Fittipaldi's doing in in your car or is it a, a real distraction to keep the focus 
Well, the thing is, you don't know what's happening out there. You know, that's the problem. You see the smoke, you see the flames or whatever, um, but you don't know, is the, is the guy out of the car? Is he not out of the car? You know, we've had lots and lots of cars have big accidents. As I said, I think, in the in the, my column the other day, you know, uh, I was I was helping Ensign for a couple of races when Jackie X crashed at Watkins Glen. And, you know, we didn't know he crashed. There was nothing... No big deal, because you don't get people coming. In those days, you didn't get people coming and telling you anything. So you wander off around the track because you want to get the car back and got around there, and the, you know, the front of the car separated from the back of the car, and his, his boots are still in the front of the car. And you think, God, dear me, you know. But we knew nothing about that in the pits. Same with Claire Regazzoni's accident in the in the end sign, whenever I, I worked for them then. You know, again, went out in the track to, to, to get the car and discovered the consequences, you know, he was still in the car at the time I arrived there, but we didn't know him in the pits, and you know the practice didn't stop then. It kept going, so it had to be a really big accident before they'd stop anything in those days. You even just think of that that period in the 70s, so many terrible accidents, but the fact that this Grosjean one is such an outlier is uh, is good, but obviously, as, you, as we've discussed, have to keep pressing on. Well, that's probably all we've got time for in terms of the questions. We've got a few questions which I'll, I'll stash for next week. There's some, some about the 2022 regulations, obviously, if... For those who listened last week, we had the discussion about the 22 rules. If you haven't had a listen to that, it's well worth having a look back because lots changing there. So we might revisit a couple of those next week. Always good to uh, get ahead. With the best one in the world, I hope we don't have quite such a similar thing to talk about next week. Something that's interesting in the same way, but not quite so uh, so alarming, shall we say. So thank you very much, Gary Anderson. And we'll hear from you next week. So do, if you haven't already done so, head to the race.com and don't forget the hyphen. Loads there from Gary to read, including that piece about looking at the accident debris and trying to understand what's broken and and what's where. Well worth a look. Have a look at our YouTube channel as well. Just search for The Race. There's also a video on there, which some of Gary's insight contributed to about the accidents. And please check out some of our sister podcasts, including The Race F1 podcast. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back next week with more from Gary. (laughs) 